Hello, hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of John Doe & Co. Tales of True Crime. My name is Aidan, and I'll be your maestro of the macabre, your guide to the gory, your podcast bloke. I get my name isn't John, but life is full of disappointments, as my parents said at my baptism, so suck it up. I won't rattle on too much about me, but I do want to give you a bit of a background so you know who it is who's whispering into your canals. Um, I'm a screenwriter, which is going really, really well. Um, Yeah, people said, you know, if I don't slow down, I'd be um, Francis Ford Coppola any day. So, yeah, I just thought I'd start a podcast just to, you know, ground me. Um, Yeah, I don't want to, you know, peak too early, like... 2005 X Factor winner Shane Ward. Nice little niche reference for you there. But yeah, as I said, I'm a screenwriter and true crime obsessy, and I thought I'd give this podcasting malarkey a go. Uh, the idea mainly came to me whilst I was working my customer service job, and I realised I was either going to become a murderer or maybe just spend a bit of time talking about them instead. So here we are. I'm into all things weird and strange, and if you're the same, you are potentially in the correct location. So, what's the first case? Well, it's a very, very interesting one, luckily. I didn't want to fall into the trap of going for something super gory or like a classic serial killer for the first episode, and I wanted to cover something I haven't heard many shows talk about before. So I've decided to talk about the shooting of Sam Cooke. I've always been invested in this case, as I'm a huge fan of Sam Cooke and his music. I've always been an old soul when it comes to my music taste, so I get on with mums and nans. I smash nans. Can't wait for that to be taken out of context. To be fair, I smash old people in general. I'm equal opportunities when it comes to my smashing. Anyway, this case is also one that I feel is still hugely relevant today with the Black Lives Matter movement and the values that Mr Cook lived by almost six decades ago. I've seen a lot of podcast reviews say that they don't like the shows to be too political and, you know, how dare people have a voice and opinion, but this case cannot be untied from its social and political implications, and I'm going to voice an opinion if I feel it's pertinent to the case. Also, if you're a racist, please vacate the podcast. Cool. Only sound people left? Right. I mean, if it feels preachy, then sign me up to the clergy. Preacher clergy. Am I mixing religious metaphors? Ah, who cares? They mix up age of consent sometimes, don't they? Eh? Too spicy for a first episode? Ah, we'll see. To be fair, I am from a Catholic background, so by rights I can make the jokes. Just hope I don't get hunted down by the Catholic Power Rangers. The Wonder Warriors, whatever they be called. So, who was Sam Cooke? If you've never heard of him, I implore you to go and listen to his music. Seriously, I feel like even if you're not into soul music or older music, anyone can find something to love in Cook's music. It's quintessentially of that era, and he just has a wonderful voice. I'll mention a few of his songs during this episode, so maybe listen to them as we go along. Sam Cook has been referred to as the most successful pop musician of the late 50s and early 60s, alongside Elvis Presley. His songs include hits such as Cupid, Wonderful World, Bring It On Home To Me, and perhaps his most enduring work, A Change Is Gonna Come. The latter has become an anthem of the civil rights movement, even being used by Obama during his presidential run, almost 45 years after its release. Sam Cooke was massively successful and hugely influential and powerful, particularly for a black man in 60s America. 
Al Schmidt, Cook's producer, said everyone wanted to be his producer. You'd have hit after hit after hit. Sam Cooke kept making massive tunes, was really happy and successful, and lived happily ever after. Thanks for listening, guys. Unfortunately, this is not the case, obviously. You'll come to learn that happy endings are rare in this podcast. It has that in common with Rotherham. On 11th of December 1964, at approximately 3am, Sam Cooke was shot and killed at the Motel Hacienda, 9137 South Figueroa Street, LA an event which shook the nation and indeed the world. Before we get into this heartbreaking, puzzling event, let's go back and learn a little more about the man behind the music. Sam Cooke was born on 22nd of January 1931 in Clarksville, Mississippi, the son of Minister Charles Cooke and his wife Anne-Marie. His family moved to the Bronzeville area of Chicago in 1933 and Cooke attended Wendell Phillips High School, the same school attended by Nat King Cole. Which, can I add, is absolutely mental. Like, two of these huge musical talents happening to go to the same school not too many years apart from each other. It's the equivalent of, like, David Bowie and Freddie Mercury going to the same school or something. The only moderately famous person who went to my school was Rose West. I'm not joking, and don't you worry, we will get to that foul specimen at some point. Cook discovered his love for music in his early teens. He joined gospel groups such as The Singing Children, which just sounds like a Doctor Who episode circa 2008, to be honest. However, he was an absolute hit at churches and became a member of the group The Soul Stirrers when he was just 18 years old. Back then, any music outside of gospel was branded devil's music. Musicians such as Little Richard were viewed as bad influences to black youth. This led to Sam recording early solo songs as pseudonym Dale Cook. This attempt was thinly veiled, however, as his scores of fans were not fooled by this fake name and recognised his voice instantly. To pursue his music further, Sam moved to LA in 1957. He made friends and contacts within the biz, and his first big hit was You Send Me, that very same year, an absolute banger if I say so myself. One of my favourites of his. It spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard pop chart and six on the R&B one, All this despite the fact that a lot of record stores at the time would only carry white music. One notable exception to this was Dolphin Records in Hollywood, which acted as a bastion for black and white people to come together over their love of music. Honestly, the place deserves a whole podcast of its own, and I can't possibly cover just how fascinating and cool this place looked. Pictures of it just looked like a huge party and everyone was having a good time. Please go and look it up. I'll post some pictures on the Instagram too if you want to check it out. I just can't really do it justice with my verbage at the moment. Um, But yeah, it looks great. As you can probably gather, at this time, segregation was heavily in force. William H. Parker was police chief at the time, and also a giant Wally who supported this measure. The LAPD would actively harass John Dolphin, owner of the store. Jamel Dolphin, his grandson, reports that whites were corralled away from the store. Police would warn people that they would be the victims of crime if they stuck around, even telling one woman she was bound to get gang-raped if she went to the store. Which is just, yeah, beyond words, really. Fortunately, the store still managed to thrive. Unfortunately, this could not deter tragedy. John Dolphin was shot and killed on the 1st of February 1958 by disgruntled, failing musician Percy Ivey, an event that would be hauntingly prophetic of things to come. Sam faced a lot of racism on the road. 
He had incredible integrity and refused to sing to segregated audiences. One show he did perform saw him only face the black side of the audience. One event that particularly grieved Sam was when he was accosted by police for merely being sat in an empty car at a gas stop. Another story of unfair treatment by police led to Sam delivering the sickest burn of essentially saying to the officer, go home and ask your wife if she likes Sam Cooke. The constant second-class treatment despite his success likely galvanised Sam to want to take more ownership of his work and to answer to no one but himself. He started SAR Records from his friend J.W. Alexander's apartment and became a force to be reckoned with. He signed major talents such as Johnny Morissette, the Sims Twins and Mel Carter. He also set up what were called soul stations where musicians could meet, network and make music together, which is pretty damn cool. His success afforded the ability for him to purchase a house in the affluent neighbourhood of Los Feliz in LA. He drove fancy cars, partied and overall lived a lavish lifestyle. He was the model of ambition for black people at the time. He was great friends with Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. They've been referred to as the holy trinity of black culture and I mean what an incredible group of people to be associated now it may sound like everything was hunky-dory and he was this high flyer and all that stuff but I feel it is important to point out that Sam Cooke was not perfect and he did not have a perfect life then again he is human so go figure Sam was married twice he married Dolores Elizabeth Milligan, a singer-dancer known as D.D. Mohawk in 1953. They divorced in 1958 and she was sadly killed in an automobile accident in 1959. Sam paid for her funeral. The same year as the divorce, Sam married Barbara Campbell and they had three kids, Linda, Tracy and Vincent. He also had a further three kids out of wedlock. A woman named Connie Bolling cited Cook as her child's father and established court proceedings against Sam. It was settled out of court in the sum of $5,000, around $43,000 now. Sam was known as a womaniser even to his own wife. His friend Bumps Blackwell said of Sam he would walk past a good girl to get to a whore. What happened to old-timey gentlemen, huh? Vincent, Sam's youngest child, drowned in the family pool in 1963 in a heartbreaking accident. I can't even imagine the grief this must have brought, and this was compounded by the fact that Sam had to walk past that pool every single day, any time he arrived or left his home. So we can clearly see that Sam had his fair share of controversy and personal tragedy too. Now, the early hours of 11th December 1964, as we mentioned towards the top of the episode, the night Sam Cooke was killed. Gun violence was disturbingly common in this part of south-central LA. Even the cops seemed slightly nonchalant about the appearance of a dead man, lying bloody and naked at the door of a motel manager. Norman Edelin, one of the few people of colour to serve the precinct of LAPD at the time, says the attitude was, oh well, another N-word got shot. I'm not going to say the word of course, but that N-word certainly isn't numpty. The body was that of Sam Cooke, and the events that led to his death are hotly contested even today. The official story begins with Sam having dinner with his producer Al Schmidt and his wife Joan the night of 10th December at a place called Martoni's. Fans repeatedly would come to the table to get a glimpse of the star and to briefly say hello. Sam had reportedly already had a few drinks and was called away to the bar. 
When their orders arrived, Al went to get Sam and saw him laughing it up with a group of friends and associates. Sam was very jovial and was flashing the cash, apparently brandishing a wad of thousands of dollars. I mean, I feel top dog if I've got 30 quid and a weatherspoon, so holy moly, that must have been a night out. Sam told Al that him and Joan can get on with their meal. Near the bar, a young woman sat in a booth with three men. She was familiar to Sam. He had seen her before and she was making eyes at him. One of the men was a guitar player Sam knew and he introduced the pair. The 22-year-old woman's name was Elisa Boyer and they hit off pretty quick. They left Martona's around 1am in Sam's Ferrari and were set to go to a club called PJ's to reconvene with the Schmitz. By the time they arrived, Alan Joan had gone. They stayed a while before Sam had gotten into an argument with another guy that was flirting with Boyer. Boyer asked Sam to take her home around 2am. According to Boyer, Sam raced down Santa Monica onto the freeway. She again asked to go home and Sam insisted on driving a little longer, commenting on how pretty she was. They left the highway at Figueroa Street, the site of the motel near LAX. Boyer asked again to be taken home and Sam drove straight to the motel. He got out of the car, walked to the manager's office and registered his own name with Bertha Franklin, who was on duty. She saw Boyer in the car and asked them to sign in as Mr and Mrs. Now, I do want to quickly jump in here and say that if this official story is true, it is obviously deeply problematic. The fact that Boyer was asking to go home and was essentially ignored and taken to this motel is pretty messed up. The difficulty comes from the fact that this story may not just be completely true. We should of course always stand with victims of sexual assault and harassment, but I feel we do have to establish the veracity of the claims first of all. It's a lot more difficult when someone isn't there to tell their own side of the story and to defend themselves, but I just want to point out that, you know, if it happened, it's horrific, but not everything makes complete sense with the official account. Sam drove to the back of the motel and dragged Boyer into the room. He pinned her to the bed and began to remove her clothes. I knew he was going to rape me, she told police. She said she needed to use the bathroom and tried to lock the door, but the latch was broke. She also tried the window, but it was painted shut. She re-entered the room and Sam was already undressed. He began to grope her and then excused himself to use the bathroom. Boyer took this opportunity to grab her clothes and leave. In the confusion, she also grabbed Sam's clothes and bolts it. Once again, if this is true, it's truly a horrifying experience for someone to go through and no one deserves this inflicted upon them. Sam finds Boyer and his clothes missing and he goes to the manager's office wearing just a sports jacket. He demands to know where the girl is, thinking Bertha is hiding Boyer. He forces his way in and begins to physically assault her. He grabbed both my arms and started twisting them, Franklin testified, and asked me, where was the girl? I started kicking, I tried to bite him through the jacket, I was fighting, biting, scratching, everything. Franklin grabbed her twenty-two pistol and squeezed off three shots. Two missed, but the other tore through Cook's heart and lungs. He proclaims, Lady, you shot me. He comes at her again and she beats him with a broom. He collapses. Evelyn Carr, owner of the motel, reportedly hears the intrusion and gunshot and calls police to investigate. Sam Cook was dead. The event, of course, shook America and was particularly hard for the black community. The news spread like wildfire. There is even a story that a reporter in London was calling the LAPD to confirm the story before some of them even knew the body was identified. Immediately, the sequence of events was heavily scrutinised. 
Walter Ward, lead singer of the Olympics, is convinced Sam was murdered, and the story is a lackadaisical cover-up. Dr Anthony Samad, a political scientist, suggests clouded circumstance when it comes to Cook's death. Lisa Boyer was busted a month later for being part of a prostitution ring. As long as she's in control of her actions and is making the choice, have at it. However, she was then later charged with the second-degree murder of an ex-boyfriend. Testimony from those around Sam, including nephew Eugene Jameson, say that he was a good person, rarely angry, and was never out to hurt anyone. The trial took place only five days later, on 16th of December 1964. It was not anywhere near as comprehensive as it should have been. Neither Bertha Franklin nor Lisa Boyer had an attorney, which is typically a bloody awful idea when you're in a murder trial. Lisa wore dark glasses the whole time, which again is something that is typically considered a faux pas in judicial settings. Bertha was acquitted on counts of self-defence, and Sam's death was ruled justifiable homicide. Cyril H. Wecht, MD, forensic pathologist, refutes that it was reasonable to rule this as justifiable homicide. Sam had no weapon, no warning was given, and the gun was not used first as a deterrent. Crazy idea, ban them. It's worked exceptionally well in England, Scotland, Canada. Maybe give it a go? Bertha received death threats after Sam's death and had to leave the motel and move home. She sued the Cook estate for mental and physical injury and was awarded $30,000 in damages, roughly $259,000 now cash. As for Lisa Boyer, she has remained in prison for her second-degree murder charge, but has had little to say since the events, becoming rather reclusive. Mike McCormick is a PI who worked at the LAPD at the time. He managed to interview Boyer again regarding the events, and she merely repeated her statement basically verbatim. As we've already touched upon, there are things that really don't make sense about the shooting itself. Why did Bertha Franklin swap her still-loaded gun in favour of hitting Sam with a broom? She'd already shot him and made her peace with that, why go for a broom after? It is reported that Sam's hands were crushed and his head bashed in. Could a woman in her fifties do this with a broom? Upon seeing his body, singer Atta James said that his head was near detached from his shoulders, which is just... Whoa. Allegedly, nobody at the motel actually heard a gunshot that night. In fairness, it was 3am and maybe not many people were staying, but I would have thought a gunshot could be heard. The bullet that killed Sam has since been lost to time in police evidence, which is hugely suspect. It's a pretty damn important thing to keep a hold of. He was killed with a 22, but Bertha Franklin only had a 32 registered. This was never questioned officially. Diners at Martoni's report that Boyer was completely complicit and happy to be with Sam. It was here, if we remember, that he was waving money around, approximately $5,000. Only $20 was found in Boyer's purse and $108 in Cook's car. There is a theory that Boyer conducted a well-known technique of robbing a man, where the victim's clothes are taken so they don't give chase, but it was played off as confusion in the moment. The rest of the money was never recovered, and what a score that would be for a thief, one of the biggest musicians of the day that you've actively seen flashing thousands of dollars. All of this being said, Boyer and Franklin did pass polygraph tests. How much you buy into their validity is up to you, but a thought is worth mentioning. Some question that a star such as Sam would have access to any hotel in Hollywood. Why pick this seedy dive motel, known for illicit and under-the-table goings-on? This led to some proposing he was beaten and killed elsewhere and taken to the motel to be 
found. Bertha showed little signs of injury or struggle on her. Sam was also shot under the armpit, which is a very calculated, almost assassin-like placement, as it has a huge likelihood of doing fatal damage. There are also many theories when it comes to the potential why of Sam Cooke's death beyond the official story. The FBI at the time was watching friends of his as they posed a danger to the status quo. Could this be a factor? Malcolm X was killed mere months later. Sam could be viewed as especially dangerous, as he was already a commanding presence in white living rooms and white America. Muhammad Ali commented, If this happened to Frank Sinatra or the Beatles, the FBI would be investigating. Hard to argue with that one. Sam also upset members of the mob. They had always been involved in the record industry, as it's highly lucrative, and Sam was resistant to their presence and taking some of the cut. Even Sammy Davis Jr. warned him to be careful with these people. Perhaps the most prominent and sensational of the conspiratorial claims is that a man named Alan Klein had something to do with Sam Cooke's death. I gotta say, I am partial to conspiracies, and this one certainly has credibility in my eyes. I will disclaim in advance that I am no expert on contracts or the music industry, and there was some complicated underhand stuff going on, but I'll try and do my best to explain. Publishing rights disputes and Sam's eagerness to become a self-sufficient powerhouse in the music industry led to him becoming a threat to individuals such as Klein. Alan Klein made a career procuring what artists would do from record companies whilst making a handsome profit of money for himself. Sam met him in spring 1963 and Klein pitched his royalty-finding service. He found that the RCA label owed Sam money and their partnership started. He planned to renegotiate contracts at RCA to Sam's advantage. After this, he pitched Tracy Limited, a company so-called after Cook's daughter. It was proposed to Sam as a big win, a way for Sam to take ownership of his material and be in control of where it was and the money it was making. The company owned all rights to Sam's music and RCA distributed. Sam was under the impression that he owned the company. He did not. Klein did. Shareholder information was also withheld from Sam, and there was only one shareholder. No prizes for guessing who that was. Klein. Sam was very impressed with Klein, and often excitedly talked about their partnership at the time. Zelda Sands, Sam's assistant and owner of the coolest name ever, described him as a thief. She recalled a time when Klein asked her to retrieve the copyrights for Sam's music, and she was an absolute boss and told him to shove off. Her friend Florence Greenberg, another top draw name, hired him as an accountant and ended up hating him. She begged Sam not to go with Klein. She was not alone in her distaste for Klein. He is actually partially credited as the man who broke up the Beatles and is the reason the Rolling Stones rarely play their early career songs live. His company owns their music and stands to make money if they play it. He coerced Sam into signing papers that essentially gave Klein all publishing rights to his music. Sam was also covertly removed from the board of directors at Tracy Limited, his title and standing in the company hierarchy gradually becoming less prominent. A few days before his death, Sam argued with Klein and planned to leave and start his own new label. Sam was set to head to New York and take everything back on a Monday. He was killed the Friday before. Chillingly, Klein also called Zelda after Sam's death and said, I know you think I killed Sam Cooke, seemingly unprompted. Tracy Limited was merged into Abco, which is where Sam's music currently lies. It seems likely that signatories were not present when this merge was signed off. 
Sam himself supposedly signed this on 27th of September 1963 in New York, when he had a live show the night before in New Orleans, making it a stretch he could sign it. Even a flight nowadays takes a few hours, so I guess it is possible, but you would need a good amount of LucasAid to get through that. Abco continues to collect royalties even today, and refuses to talk about Sam's death or respond to interview requests. Now, all of this is very intriguing and holds tantalising possible explanations for the shocking events of 11th and December 1964, if the official story doesn't stack up with you. Our mate Cyril H. Wecht, who I mentioned earlier, has weighed up on the theories. A little info about him is that he has conducted 20,000 autopsies himself and advised on 40,000 more, and is quite the authority on all things crimey and deathly. Definitely on my tea party list, I must say. Hit me up, Cyril. Commenting on the autopsy of Sam, he explains a bullet entered his left side, hitting both his heart and lungs, which led to massive bleeding. Looking at a picture of the crime scene, you can see abrasions and contusions to the hands and knee, which lines up with witnesses claiming he had crushed hands and a fractured knee. These injuries are mentioned nowhere on the autopsy. Despite this, Wecht is sceptical of the idea Sam was moved at all. He points out that no evidence suggests the body was relocated. Blood trails or the like would be left if he was savagely beaten, shot and dumped. A key idea in the study of crime and investigation that you might find interesting is Locard's exchange principle. Essentially this states that a perpetrator of a crime will bring something into a crime scene and leave with something from it. For example, you leave footprints at the scene and have blood on your clothes from the victim. This principle cannot be met in this case. Wecht goes on to also claim that it would be a quote quantum leap in logic to link the business dealings of Cook to his death. No forensic evidence has been found to warrant a re-examination. And you know what, Cyril? I don't believe you. To me, the official conclusion and story has massive issues in its logic. There's too many questions left once it is all told. I get there's little in the way of forensics to suggest otherwise, but there is so much in the way of circumstantial that I truly believe foul play. And circumstantial evidence is something that definitely still needs to be looked into, even if you don't have the nitty-gritty data. How deep it goes is something I'm less certain of. Whether it was simply a robbery gone wrong, or some elaborate plot by the FBI to take out a figure of the civil rights movement, I'm unsure. Stranger things have happened. I mean, look what happened to Fred Hampton. That was just a flat-out assassination by the powers that be. Just saying. Sam's first funeral was back in his childhood home of Chicago. And you heard me right. First funeral. He did actually end up having two. Thousands attended the service at Tabernacle Church. A second service was held at Mount Sinai Baptist Church in LA, which was held as a show for the ages. Ray Charles sang and megastars such as Muhammad Ali attended. Sam was buried in Forest Lawn Cemetery in the Garden of Honor, with the likes of Walt Disney, Nat King Cole and L. Frank Baum. Sam's legacy is enormous, with many artists being inspired by him and mimicking his stylings. He led to the rise of individuals such as Curtis Mayfield, Billy Preston, Aretha Franklin and many more. We have a lot to thank him for, basically. He is known, quite rightfully, as the King of Soul. Well, that about does it for this case, and for the first episode of John Doe & Co. Tales of True Crime. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope it wasn't a tremendous disaster. Obviously, you'll have to bear with me, this is my first go, and hopefully it'll just get better as we go along. I'm in my little cupboard room at the moment, I call it the TURDIS, but you never know. 
in the future I might have my own pod space so stick around I wanted to leave you with the last thing to ponder on and this is a song I mentioned earlier a change is going to come as I said this became an anthem of the civil rights movement and is a truly beautiful song Sam himself said it was the hardest song he ever had to perform Sam's story in this song is still hauntingly resonant today and I really hope he was right when he said change would come Rene Graham of the Boston Globe has this great quote regarding the song it is the shame of our nation that this song is still so relevant. Rene is right. The onus is on us, my friends, to be that change. So, as I said, this is a brand new podcast and I hope to stick around and make more episodes. Having you guys support me would be a massive boon, so please go and give the Instagram and Twitter a follow, at John Doe Co Pod. Rate, review and subscribe on your podcasting app. And if you're feeling really nice and you're a bloody legend, head on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash John Doe and Co pod and donate. At the moment, it's obviously just to mainly support me and the podcast, but it's also going to buy me some new kit, make it better quality. I'm planning on some bonus content for Patreon people, including extra episodes and virtual socials and behind the scenes stuff. And yeah, as I said, any funds will be going back into the pod to get me some better equipment. I'll of course also give you the shoutiest of shout outs on a future episode. It would mean a lot to me and thank you so much. Feel free to DM me any suggestions for future episodes too, uh, or just if you want to chat. Next episode, we'll be covering something very different. The pod is subtitled Tales of True Crime, but I'll be covering anything weird and strange, so we'll be going to the beautiful tropical climes of Suffolk in England to cover Rendlesham Forest, Britain's own little version of Roswell. That's right, aliens, baby. I hope to see you there, and thanks for being such good company. Peace out.